life-giving for me, and, and I hope these gatherings are always life-giving uh, for our church. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of 1 John. 1 John, it's in the very back of your Bible. And we are um, in 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 5 uh, this morning, and we're going to work our way through to chapter 2, verse 2. So again, um, 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what uh, this, this passage says to us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, Father God, this morning as we come into this time uh, where we uh, open up your word, we just, I just want to stop and, and say thank you, God, for your word. Uh, we recognize this morning that uh, many people have given their lives over the years. They've literally given their life that we might have a copy of it in our own hands, in our own language. And uh, we're just so thankful, Lord, for the preciousness of your word and that you've revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, we ask um, this morning, Holy Spirit, that you uh, would help us to understand what we need to understand. And Lord Jesus, may our lives, as a result, bring you so much glory in this place. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man. Uh You know there's a big difference in life between receiving an announcement that is interesting and receiving an announcement that you have to do something with, okay? Both are announcements, but the responses are very different. So if somebody walked in here this morning and came up to me and said, oh man, uh, Mount Hood is beautiful this morning, I would say, oh, that's, that's interesting, right? Um, I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, maybe I'm going to, you know, try to figure out how to go and get a view of it today or something like that. I'm like, that's interesting. That's good. Okay. But if somebody walked up to me this morning and said, Mount Hood is erupting. Okay. Um, I'll probably think now that is interesting, right? That's really interesting. Um, but for very different reasons, very different reasons, okay? One message is just information. I don't really need to do anything with it. At best, again, if I'm curious, I'm going to go and check out a view at some point today. On the other hand, the other message isn't just information to me. If someone told me that Mount Hood is erupting, I'm not going to simply think, that's interesting. I need to do something about that. And we maybe shouldn't be in here right now. I don't know, just saying. But you see, our passage this morning, it proclaims uh, an announcement to you and to me. And the language here is actually giving us the image of a king's herald. 
That's, that's the imagery that we have here. And John says that the message that he's proclaiming to you this morning is not made up with his own ingenuity. It's not man-made, as if he made it up or he manufactured himself. It's a message that he's heard, and he didn't hear this message from anybody else, like just some random other human being that told him about this thing, right? It's not from another person who just decided to start a new religion or to create up new truths or something like that. He says that he's heard this message from him. Who's him? Well, him is the king, right? The king of all creation. It's him who we saw last week in verse 1 is the word of life. But as we also saw, the word of life is not just an idea. It's not just words. The word of life is a person because John says, I have not only heard this word of life, but I've seen this word of life, and I've examined this word of life, and I've even touched this word of life. This word of life is referring to as Jesus. And so John says here that he's just the mailman, okay? And mailmen deliver news that's not their own news, like, if you get mail in your mailbox, you know, you just know that your mailman didn't write all that information to you and then deliver it to you, right? They just, they're the middleman, right? They passed it along. He just delivers it. And so here, John is saying, and he's continuing to express the content of the mail that he's heard from Jesus and he's delivering to you. And he says what in verse 5? This is the mail, right? This is the message that we have heard from him. We proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, notice that it doesn't say God is like light, and it doesn't say that God is the light. It just says God is light. Right? This language is trying to communicate that God is pure, right? that there's no stain in him, there's no failure, there's no falsehood, there's no imperfection, there's no single wrong act that he's done. God is light declares everything that God does is right, regardless of my understanding of those actions. You guys, this is a holiness language. God is set apart. There is no one in his league. There's no one in his category. There's no one who rivals him or that you can compare to him, right? Or you can compare him to, you compare everything to him, right? And to drive this point home, John doubles down and he says, just in case, we're, just so we're clear here, in him is no darkness at all. He is light and there is no darkness in him. And so this is the message. This is the announcement. And this message proclaimed to us this morning, it's not just interesting, although it is. And it isn't merely something you need to factually know, although you do. It doesn't just require a few follow-up questions. It requires an entire response from our lives. You see, this message is not something we hear or that we merely know. It's something that we practice. It's something that we practice. We have to do something with it. And so if you're of the note-taking kind or you just want to know where we're headed today, um, uh, we see in this passage here three foolish claims in response to this message. We see an alternative way that we can live in response to this message. And then thirdly, we see this glorious truth which is really God's response to this message. So here, read with me the, these three uh, foolish claims, these three foolish claims that we see given in response to this message. Verse 6, what does it say? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say... 
We have not sinned. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right, so notice just the slight progression here. It says, we lie, we deceive ourselves, we make God a liar. And what's the conclusion to all these claims that you can make, that you can just say, right? That we don't practice the truth, that the truth is actually not in us, that the word isn't in us. Well, what is John talking about here when he's talking about light and darkness and all these things? Like, what is he talking about? Well, John is not talking about, just so we're clear, he's not talking about people who go on walks at nighttime, okay, and don't go on walks during the daytime, but say they only go on walks during the daytime when they really only go on night, okay? That's not at all what John's talking about here, just so we're really clear, okay? He's not really talking about walking and stuff, okay? Just to be on the same page here, when John is talking about darkness, John is talking about sin, He's talking about sin, which I know uh, the word sin is, to be honest, it's fallen on hard times, hasn't it, okay? It's used by our culture at large and maybe even some of us in this room as a way to maybe only mock the idea of sin or to minimize our sin. So we might just say, like, well, I'm a sinner, you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. You know, it's, ironically, it's mocking the idea of it. Uh, We've renamed sin so that it doesn't sound so bad. We might just use the word, I made a mistake, you know, or I was just being an idiot, or it's my personality flaw, you know, it's because of my upbringing, or it's my Enneagram number's fault, you know, I'm a two, whatever it is, you know. Um, and it's possible that if you believe in the reality, if you actually believe in the reality of willful sin, and if you believe that you're actually born into sin and your heart's disposition is towards it, and if you tell anyone that in this world, a lot of people might look at you like you just said, you think the earth is flat. Because we live in a day and age where people think that everyone's generally good. And that's a, it's a very contrary way of viewing things. So has it gone out of style? Has it gone out of style? Well, actually, it's always been trending since the very beginning of time, right? Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin has always been a really trendy thing. It's always been a part of our lives, and, and all you have to do is watch a baby grow into a toddler, and you'll quickly see that sin isn't something that they're taught. I don't teach my, well, probably do through example in many ways, but I don't tell my kids to sin or something like that, right? It's something they naturally understand. It's the way of their heart. I think the hard thing to admit is that apart from Jesus, I'm no different, and neither are you. So if sin is the great reality of our lives and of our world, how do we even know what sin is? Like, how do you know what it is? What gives us our definition for sin here? Well, it's actually the comparison of darkness and light. In other words, if you want to know what darkness is, you have to know what light is. And the only way you know what darkness is is by knowing what light is. So people deny sin in their own life because they compare themselves often to the wrong source. So if I walk in darkness and I compare my darkness to other shades of darkness, I might call things sin that aren't sin or things that aren't sin, sin. So I'm comparing it to the wrong thing. I I probably don't know what I'm actually supposed to be comparing it to. I probably don't think what I am living in is very dark at all. Um, This comparison thing, I think, uh, could be explained in in a lot of different ways, but one in which could be uh, just the fact that my kids think I'm really buff, okay? which maybe that word's falling on hard times too, okay? They think I'm really strong, okay? They, my kids think I'm just like a beast, you know, basically at home. Um, like I'm the strongest person in the world. 
Um, and I can convince them that if someone were to break into our house, and if I'm home, things are going to be okay, just through my massive strength and the combat skills I show them, things like that. But you know what they're doing is they're comparing me and my strength to theirs. So they're trying to lift up a box, and they're like, I can't do it. And I just come along, and I, no problem, guys. You know, and they're like, wow, Dad. You know, or I can't open this jar, and I just quickly open it or something. They're comparing their strength to mine. That's what they think strong is. But this morning, if I were to, like, arm wrestle Bob Schilling, right, Bob's a beast, okay? So if I, were to, if I were to arm wrestle Bob Schilling in front of them, they would quickly get a different definition of what strength is, wouldn't they? Because the source of what strength is, is being compared to a whole different thing. It, it's redefining things, isn't it? So here we have it. There are people John is writing to, and I bet there's plenty enough of us this morning that are walking in darkness and they say that they claim to walk in the light. Probably because they're comparing their darkness to other dark things. And John is saying, you're comparing your darkness to the wrong source. The comparison to know what is darkness is to compare our lives to the source. What is the source? God, who is light. It's important we see here that this walking is actually present tense. Okay? Uh, it's, it's communicating this habitual lifestyle. This doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that if you are living your life by habitually living in sin and being fine with it, in other words, if your sin doesn't bother you and you either find yourself planning your sin or justifying it, or there's no fight in the dog, so to speak, you saying, oh, I have fellowship with God, he's saying, that's a lie. You're a liar. This is you, you are called a liar here and you are making God out to be a liar because you are trying to redefine what light actually is. I think of this example a lot in my life. Um, I grew up in Montana and I would go fly fishing the Missouri River often. It was right next to my house. I would go fly fishing all the time. And then I moved to California for schooling and there's not a lot of bodies of water like rivers in California, at least where I was. And so fly fishing just wasn't a thing, wasn't a part of my life for about seven years and then we moved back to Oregon here in the Willamette Valley, and there's a lot more rivers, but just whether it was my season of life or whatever it was, I just, I never fly fished much. I, would, I probably went like three times in the last 10 years, not going to lie, okay? And, um, you know, when people would ask who I am or, you know, you had to fill out your social media bio or something like that, I would always put fly fishermen in there. And then Elizabeth, my, very lovingly, my wife pointed out to me one day, she goes, you can't keep saying that. Because you don't fish. Like I, I, I'm a fly fisherman, but I'm never fly fishing. And it was gentle and loving, and she was right. The same is true of a lot of other things. If you say you're a painter and you never paint, or if you say you're a musician and you never play music, or if you say you're a teacher but you never teach, or you're a hiker and you never hike, or you're a world traveler and you've never been out of the country. If you say that you love and have fellowship with God, who is light, and just to be clear, in him is no darkness at all, and yet you walk in the darkness, are you playing the game this morning? 
You're pretending. If you are, and if you've been able to do it for long enough, I bet you're really tired, huh? And I bet you might be a bit miserable. I mean, it's really hard to keep up with images, isn't it? It's exhausting. And as you see here, you are deceiving not only others, but you're deceiving yourself. You're believing a lie that walking in darkness and trying to keep up the images is the way to life, and you're simply distancing yourself from the very source of life. And notice as well, this breaks your fellowship and intimacy with others. So just for example, if you're a Christian and you're not walking in the light, but you're saying you are, and your marriage isn't going well, that's probably why. So this is one type of response that can be made to this sort of weighty message this morning that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, but there's also an alternative way. There's an alternative way that we see here in verses 7 and verse 9. Verses 7 and verse 9. Let's look at those verses. It says in verse 7, but, the alternative, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the pivotal idea in these verses is that we should want to walk in the light because God is in the light, but we sin. So you can lie or you can practice the truth. That's the alternative. So I'm curious, have you ever thought about truth as something you can practice? Have you ever thought about truth as something you practice? You practice, because that's what we see here. These people are walking in darkness in verse 6, and what are they not doing? They're not practicing the truth. So the alternative is given to walk in the light, which is, this, which is the same idea, the same phrase as practicing the truth. They're not practicing the truth, so you can practice the truth, which would be walking in the light. So we see here that truth is not something that I simply know or that I can recite. Truth is not something that I just, it's something that I actually live. That's what it is. And so the word we see here is practice. Like I said, in verse 6, the alternative way is to walk in the light, verse 7. So what's the result of practicing the truth? What what happens when you practice the truth? We see it at the end of verse 7, at the end of verse 9, cleansing. When you practice the truth, there's a cleansing that happens. And this cleansing is actually necessary in order to be in God's holy light. Do you see the parallel? You do not practice the truth, but if we practice the truth or if we walk in the light, guys, that's the alternative. That's the alternative way. It's not a way. It's, It's the alternative way. You're not given a lot of options here. You're really not. So that leads us into that important question, well, how do we do that? Like, how do we practice the truth? How do we do that? Well, our passage is really helpful here because it actually tells you how to practice the truth. What does it say? It says we practice the truth by what? Confessing. To practice the truth means to confess your sin. That's how you practice it here in this passage. Verse 9 says that if we walk in the light, we are cleansed of our darkness. You're cleansed of your sin. And verse 9 makes it clear how that's possible through confession. Through confession. Does, any, uh, does anybody in here like admitting that you've screwed up? You may get a kick out of that, you know? You're that kind of person that someone's like, how's your day? And you're like, it was, it was awesome. I, like, admitted all my faults to all these people. It was wonderful, you know? 
Like, anybody enjoy that kind of stuff? Probably not, hopefully. I mean, maybe you do. If you do, that's probably a good thing, I guess. But this will be real for a second. This is probably the hardest thing to do in life, isn't it? To say, I'm wrong. I screwed up. To actually humble yourself and agree that you have sinned, or that you've screwed up. That takes humility because the act of confession isn't simply an act when you get caught, although it can be. Here in these verses, the act of confession is a proactive thing that you're doing without somebody having to come to you. Right? This is exactly what confession is. It's coming clean. It's, it's owning up. That's what it is. It's fundamentally agreeing with God about what is true. That's why there's all this language of liars and truth in, in here. And so although confession isn't easy and it wounds our pride by keeping things in the dark, we think we aren't hurting anybody by keeping it in the dark, but we're actually hurting our intimacy with God and with other people. And that's what this tells you here in verse 7. What does it say? That by practicing the truth, it creates fellowship. So by hiding things, and I'm like, well, I'm not hurting anybody, you're actually hurting a lot of people, aren't you? So this is the alternative way. This is what it means to practice the truth. So if we want to be in the light where God is, what does that mean? Do we just need to confess all the time? So in essence, this is what I mean. As a church, we can just sin a lot, you know, and, and we can just keep on sinning, and we can all just be super transparent and raw with everybody and just cool with our brokenness and all that kind of stuff. Like, is that the alternative way? Just to get it out and everyone's like, oh, me too, you know, that kind of idea. Well, not at all. This passage says to confess and be cleansed, not so that I can just go back and get dirty right away again, right? It's so that you would walk in the light. It's so that you would practice this truth. So this isn't just confession with no change. It's confession, and then you start walking a different path. Right? You stop walking in the darkness, and you start walking in the light, which is really the idea of repentance. That's what this is. A really helpful um, he's actually an English Puritan in the 1600s named Thomas Watson. Uh, he wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And I think he'd be really helpful here for us. I think this will be it. Yep. Wow. Great. That is not it. You could read that some other time. That'd be good. Um, Thomas Watson said this, confession must be sincere. Our hearts must go along with our confessions. The hypocrite confesses sin but loves it like a thief who confesses to stolen goods, yet loves stealing. How many confess pride and covetous with their lips, and I love this, but roll them as honey under their tongue? Augustine said that before his conversion, he confessed sin and begged power against it, but his heart whispered within him, not yet, Lord. He was afraid to leave his sin too soon. A good Christian is more honest. His heart keeps pace with his tongue. He's convinced of the sins he confesses and abhors the sins he is convinced of. It's a lot to think about. Really convicting, and it's exactly what First John is telling you here. And I thought this would be helpful because he refers to Augustine here, and Augustine was a man who uh, just had a, a lot of trouble with lust in his life a lot of mistresses, things like that. And Augustine said this about that very thing. He says, as I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I had even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me 
forthwith of the morbid lust, which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. You ever feel like Augustine? Confess your sin, but you're like, yeah, but just getting it out there because I'm supposed to, but really, I don't want to walk in the light. That'd mean I have to stop walking in darkness. So what's Thomas Watson concerned about? What's his point? This, he says in his book, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. In other words, the light will be sweet, but it won't be sweet until that darkness is bitter to you. Okay? You might be saying, Josh, uh, you don't know what I've done. My sin tastes bitter. I've done some terrible stuff. But man, those things, if they were brought into the light, that would bring so much shame. And right now, just even the thought of confession cripples you with anxiety. And you say, you don't know what I've done. I've cheated on my spouse. I've had an abortion. I've done things I can't undo. I've stolen. I've lied about who I am for years. I might not know, but God knows. And you know what his response is? He responds to that in this passage. So we've seen a fool's response to the message, a genuine Christian's response. We also see God's response. What's his response? It's one glorious truth. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice this, guys. Like, press in here, okay? Like, lean forward a little bit. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It says all unrighteousness, and that means all unrighteousness. That means that whatever it is that has you on lockdown, feeling like you can never be free from it, or that God would never forgive you for it, yes, even that thing that you're thinking of, whatever that is, that's included in all unrighteousness. And God will forgive you of that. So that might lead you to a great question. Josh, how can I know that he will? Well, do you, do you just have to have blind faith? Do you, do you have to just have hope that he does? You're like, well, I'll confess it. And I'm like, well, let's, we'll see what happens. You know, hopefully someday I'll know. But you never really know, right? I mean, how do you know? Not at all. What does it say? Does it say that God will forgive you because he's nice? Does it say God will forgive you because he's gracious? Does it say God will forgive you because he loves you? Is that what it says? No, it says God will forgive you because he's faithful. It says that he is faithful to forgive you. Why is he faithful to forgive you? Because he is just to forgive you. It is just of him to actually forgive you. In other words, if you sincerely confess your sin and you desire to walk in the light, God would be unjust if he didn't forgive you. Have you ever thought about that? You might go, what, why, how? This is good news, right? I mean, this is really good news, isn't it? It's a great question. How is this possible? Look at verses one and two. It says, my little children, 
I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin. Right? So somehow what John's going to say here is like motivating you to not sin. So think about it, okay? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right? So, so you may be unrighteous. You may have had a whole lot of unrighteousness in your life, but we have an advocate, and how is he described? The righteous. He's the righteous, right? It's the one who has acted righteously, who now stands in the presence of the Father to speak on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. Jesus, the righteous one, is in the Father's presence being what for you? He's described as being what for you? An advocate. And you might like, you know, think you know what that is, which you probably do, but what is an advocate? It's someone who's called to someone else's aid. Another phrase is someone who's a helper, right? So the question is, how has Jesus been called to your aid? In what ways is he your helper? Well, he doesn't just go to your defense because he's like really good with his words and really good at like manipulating things and being sharp and cutty with them or something like that. That's not how we, it's not what it's talking about, just persuasion ideas here. No, do you see, do you see how Jesus has advocated for you? It says what? He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus, your advocate, is your propitiation. Now, I know a lot of you are like, that sounds like Christianity 1001 or something, you know? But propitiation, I mean, if we can learn new software on our phones, which I had to learn this week, or a lot of other hobbies and things like that, we can learn really important Bible words, right? Okay, so propitiation is one of them, okay? We got to have this one at least, Okay, propitiation is what? It's turning away of anger by offering a gift. That's what it is. To say it differently, it's paying the price for an offense. It's regaining favor or appeasing someone by giving something in return to satisfying the anger of the one who was offended. We get this, right? You screwed up, you hurt your spouse, you, you hurt a friend in some way, what do you do? Why do you buy them flowers? Why did you bake them cookies? Why did you clean the whole house? You're offering a gift, aren't you? That's what you're doing. We intuitively get this. But for some of us, this idea that our sin against God requires a payment or that there's a need for propitiation, it just kind of seems wrong or unloving. There's a lot of people that feel this way. That God would be angry in this way, that there would need to be something to satisfy that. But I think you intuitively get this. You do. You love justice don't you? You demand it. You want to know how I know how? Well, just think about this for a second. Have you ever been driving down the interstate or a two-lane highway and someone's just riding your tail like hardcore and then finally they just go zipping right around you, okay? And they just, you know, tear past you. What do you think in your mind? Do you think, I love that guy, you know? I wish we were friends, you know? Or maybe you're just like, oh, man, I hope he's okay. He must, there must be some emergency or something like that, you know? Let's just say you keep driving down the road, and up ahead, you notice there's some police lights going off on the side of the road. Someone has been pulled over. What do you think to yourself? Do you think, oh, hope it's not him, right? <laughs> or her, or her, right? I hope it's not, I hope it's not him, right? Because that, man, I really don't want that to happen to that guy, you know? 
I mean, again, what if it's an emergency? Like, that would be so terrible. Okay, I kind of I doubt it, right? I kind of doubt that's what you're thinking. You, when you see those lights, you probably feel a little bit of hope and excitement, don't you? You're like, oh, sweet, yes. And if it's not him, you're like really disappointed, isn't it? Why? Because you want justice, right? And you see that someone's pulled over and someone's getting justice and you want them to get a ticket. But if that were you, you don't want a ticket, right? You don't want the justice. You see, it's intuitive to us. There needs to be a payment. Our sin demands justice. There needs to be propitiation. There needs to be a speeding ticket or something, right? Who's going to pay? Well, in the first case, Jesus is an advocate in a court pleading as our advocate. In the second verse there, he's a sacrificing priest in the temple, but the sacrifice isn't something else. It's not like Jesus is sacrificing something that's valuable to him, as if it were apart from him. The sacrifice that is being put forward by Jesus is Jesus. This is the great exchange. Bonhoeffer famously said, it's costly grace because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. That price stuff is propitiation stuff. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. See, I used to think that this was kind of telling me that Jesus was in the presence of God, the Father, as my advocate, sort of begging God for me. Like, oh, please, you know, forgive, forgive him. And I'm like confessing my sin, hoping that somehow it would just happen, but I wouldn't know. And Jesus is up there like, please, Father, like one more time. And God the Father's like, oh, I don't know. Okay, okay, one more, okay, last time, right? This is the last time. But that's not at all we see here. This verse is depicting Jesus standing next to the Father when you confess your sin saying, I took that. I paid for that. Even that thing that's crippling you with anxiety, when you confess that, when you bring it to the light, he looks at his Father, he says, yep, I took that. Do you see? God is faithful. He will always forgive, and he's just. He has to forgive your confession if it's genuine because Jesus has been put forward as a propitiation. How many of us are still trying to pay for our sin when Jesus already paid for it, and therefore you're giving sin power over you that no longer has power? When I, when I was 18 or 19, I, I got a credit card, and I was an idiot with it, and I, I maxed it out. And then I found out I could transfer that money to another card, so I did, and then I maxed out that one. And every month, I'd get the bill from my credit from Visa, and I'd pay 20 bucks, you know, 25. They were making a lot of money off me, okay? I got to the end of college, and my parents, as a graduation gift, paid off my credit cards. They canceled my debt. They paid for it. You know what happened when that bill came in the mail next month? This is back when I got mail, okay? And it said balance zero. You know what I didn't do? I didn't send a payment in. I didn't go, yeah, mom and dad, thank you so much for paying my debt, but really that was my debt, so I'm going to keep sending money to Visa. 
That'd be foolish, wouldn't it? And I would basically be being like, even though that's true, even though it's happened, I'm still kind of enslaved to Visa. I'm still trying to pay for things that I don't need to pay for anymore. And the same is true in our relationship with God. How many times when we sin, you go and you confess, you go, yes, I know I'm ultimately forgiven, that kind of thing, but I still have to pay. I got to pay something. I got to beat myself up for a while or do something, right? What am I doing by doing that? When I'm not honoring Jesus and his sacrifice, I'm putting my sin above the cross and saying, if it's not enough, but secondly, I'm giving that sin power over me that it no longer has. It doesn't have it anymore. So my response in confession is to run to the cross and confess it and worship. This is why John says, I'm writing this so that you wouldn't sin. How is what John is saying here making you want to walk in the light? It's because you love the one who is light and who took on your darkness so that you could be free and to actually start walking in the light. If the debt is paid, that breaks the power of sin because it no longer has you as its slave. It's no longer a master. That's why Charles Wesley wrote in the famous hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Availed means benefit. Do you, do you see how this propitiation that was put forward for you in your place causes you to run to the cross and confess? You run towards the light. You don't hide your sin and hope no one finds out. And we know that if we bring our sin into the light, it loses its power. So where does, this, where does this leave us today? Well, I think it leaves us with this question. Are we a faith community? Are we a faith family that wants to walk in the light? Do we love the light? Okay. If we do, if you're like, yeah, for sure, if we really want that, then we must, we must be a safe place for people to confess. We can't just say we're a grace-filled community. We can't just make claims. We practice the truth. We dispense it. We dispense the grace of God. And the more you and I know how desperate we are for the grace of God, the more likely you are to give it. I mean, just think about this. Could you imagine how unique of a people we would be if we were people who were confessing people in a culture where people deny, defend, and blame? And if we were people who own up to it, just think, just imagine what it would be like if, if we were a community that felt like if we confessed our sin, if we brought it into the light, we weren't going to get the cold shoulder. We weren't going to get the sideways nodding head. We weren't, we weren't going to, the gossip train wasn't going to start. You know, or that we would be dispensed with all this shame or something, but we would be dispensed with the costly grace of Jesus. What would that be like? 
well, geez, I mean, we would be a, a really different community, wouldn't we? Which makes sense because that's the upside-down alternative way of practicing the truth. Guys, this truth is not something to simply say, and it's not something to simply know. This is something we practice. This is something we practice. So may we be people who love the light and therefore walk in the light as he is in the light. If you would, you stand with me? As we pray and go into our time of response this morning. Father in heaven, I do pray that this morning, may for many of us in this room, Lord, that we would be liberated to stop pretending and to take off our masks and to have the courage that only comes from the power of your spirit to step into the light. God, I pray that our our sin would be bitter to us and that, Lord Jesus, you would be sweet. And I pray, God, that as we respond to you through the singing of your praises and remembering your work on our behalf, God, by responding to taking communion and, and tangibly tasting your propitiating work for us. God, I, I do pray that, that that would just, that remembrance would break that power of canceled sin and set us free. Lord Jesus, would you create Um, a community within our faith community here and within your church all across this great state and our country, throughout the world, Lord, where your people would walk in this light. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.